Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Robbie is not back in studio, but he is back virtually. How are you feeling, Robbie? I'm feeling just fine. Just taking extra precaution because I care so much about you, Brianna. Well, I appreciate it mightily. <laughs> What's on tap today? All right, we have Lee Harris joining us uh, to discuss some of the nuances behind Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. And then we'll also talk about what black, uh, black voters are looking for in the midterms with our rising panel. But first, of course, the big news story of the day, Congresswoman Liz Cheney lost her primary race as expected in Wyoming yesterday to the Trump-backed opponent. Here's Cheney talking about that. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. And then her challenger, Harriet Hageman, who defeated her, had this to say to the people of Wyoming. Today, Wyoming has spoken. Wyoming has spoken on behalf of everyone all across this great country who believes in the American dream, who believes in liberty, and who recognizes that our natural rights, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, equal protection, and due process come from God. They do not come from government. And the government cannot take them away. Wyoming has spoken on behalf of everyone who understands that our government is a government of, by, and for the people. And now upon her loss, Cheney is mulling a run for the White House. Quote, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the coming months, but it is something I'm thinking about, Cheney told NBC this morning. This comes as Cheney is reportedly trying to flush $7 million from her campaign account. Cheney has already filed a form with the FEC to reorganize her funds to form a PAC called The Great Task, according to Punchbowl. Now, Robbie, what do you make of this? Do you think this is anything more than the outcome of uh, Trump's uh, powerful endorsement and the grip that he still has on the Republican Party? Is Cheney, uh, does she have any chance on a national level if that's the case? And is this just a move to, let's say, save face after her loss? Yeah, she has absolutely no uh, chance at the national level. Well, certainly not in a Republican primary. I mean, I guess she could run, if she ran third party or independent, you know, she would probably siphon off some Republican votes, so that she might actually siphon off just as many Democratic votes. So I don't know how that would work out. Obviously, she would have no shot whatsoever in a national Republican primary. Um, look, I, you know, I'm a little bit conflicted about this outcome. Liz Cheney, ideologically, um, morally, what she stands for is not are not the values that I supported in the Republican Party. You know, she's a 
Bush era, very much a national security, war on terror, Iraq war kind of uh, figure, uh, part of a political dynasty that backed those things that are responsible for a lot of policies I think were really, really bad. So on the one hand, I, I kind of want to root for her downfall, as I'm sure many on the left do. On the other hand, her downfall is not due to a repudiation of any of those policies, but it is only solely because she stood up to, to Donald Trump. And, and on that narrow issue of what she was standing up to him on, she's right. So it's a, it's a very, it, it's, it's not a, like I, I'm perfectly happy to have her exit the scene and she represents something that was very bad for the country, I think. But I don't know that that's what's being rejected here. Yeah, I think that analysis is spot on, which is also why I think it makes her a very attractive prospect to the Democratic Party. <laughs> Someone who stands up to Trump but doesn't at all challenge uh, the establishment security state foreign policy consensus or any of that, is that's exactly how you get a plumb spot on MSNBC or at the top of a Democratic ticket, uh, like someone like Michael Bloomberg, who of course had recently been a speaker at a Republican National Convention before he was warmly accepted into the embrace of the Democratic Party as someone who many people saw as you know the candidate that was teed up just in case Bernie made it a little bit too far in the primary race. Well, and, and it's, and it's hilarious to watch the endless rehabilitation of neoconservative figures in mainstream uh, de democratic and even progressive circles. You know, how many former Bush officials or, you know, ba backers and architects of the Iraq war are going to have speaking gigs on MSNBC and CNN and other places. It's just, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it makes you wonder what, <laughs> if the Republican party has another evolution, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years from now, that is somehow very contrary to Trumpism and is, is a threat, I guess, or something that the liberal establishment hates, will suddenly, you know, Bush officials, be, or uh, not Bush officials, but Trump officials, rather, become the new kind of MSNBC talking heads. It's impossible to imagine, but it would have been impossible to imagine, you know, in the aughts, that people like Nicole Wallace, et cetera, would be, would be you know, mouth, mouthpieces for kind of democratic establishment talking points uh, it's a it's a wild uh, wild cycle of of, uh, of punditry that we've undergone. Mm -hmm. Never underestimate the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Never do. Well, speaking of Trump, he took to Truth Social and said, "Quote: Congratulations to Harriet Hageman on her great and very decisive win in Wyoming. This is a wonderful result for America and a complete rebuke of the unselect com uh, committee of political hacks and thugs. Liz Cheney should be ashamed of herself." Meanwhile, Tulsi Gabbard said, quote, it appears that Liz Cheney, one of the GOP's chief warmongers, is about to lose. This is good news for every American, regardless of party. Think Tulsi's being harsh? This clip made its rounds on social media following Cheney's big loss. Waterboarding, a.k.a. torture. Well, it's not torture. But you support waterboarding. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> Right, right. And, and, you know, I think this has been forgotten, but Liz Cheney, now she's taking this, you know, quote unquote, courageous stand against Trump, but she absolutely let narrow political calculus Trump um, uh, moral or ideological consideration previously. Remember when she turned on her own sister, her mm. sister who's a, a lesbian in a, in a gay relationship, a gay marriage, and it was clear that and Dick Cheney, you know, long endorsed uh, for forever endorsed same-sex marriage and it seemed pretty clear that liz cheney did too 
And then when that was kind of an issue during her campaign, she said she was against it, even though she'd clearly been for it. She'd been at the wedding. It's, you know, it's ridiculous to think she was actually against it, but she pretended to be briefly. And then I, I think her and her sister ultimately reconciled. Mm-hmm. But you know, that, So that was a very clear example of her doing political calculation. So this, this kind of moral stance thing is a, is a newfound thing uh, for Liz Cheney. Yeah, the sympathetic read there is maybe she learned from that whole debacle that there, it wasn't worth throwing uh, your morals and your actual family members over the boat for political gains. But it could also just be that there's something else that's motivating this choice to stand up to Trump in this particular instance. Maybe it will be clarifying to everybody involved if she does continue her political uh, trajectory toward the White House. But there's even another angle to this story. The New York Post is reporting that Mr. Liz Cheney is a partner at the law firm now representing Hunter Biden. Philip Perry, Cheney's husband, has worked at Lathan and Watkins, a Democratic powerhouse, since 2007. Another partner at the firm is currently representing Hunter Biden and has since been, and has been, sorry, since December of 2020. However, Representative for Liz Cheney told the Post that Mr. Perry has no role at all in any matter involving Hunter Biden. So, you know, these firms are large. It's not like terribly unusual for people to be working on different things with very different politics and very different capacities. And certainly there are, you know, Chinese walls set up so that uh, people are privy to information across the firm. But it is an interesting coincidence and kind of demonstrates, I think, what perhaps the people of Wyoming saw here was that this isn't an establishment uh, candidate, that it is a big club and they're just simply not a member of it. Yeah, just another reminder that like everyone in Washington knows each other and works together and, you know, is connected from six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever it is. Uh, (laughs) It's just... uh, you know, it's that utterly disgusting kind of swamp-like characteristics that, that Trump spoke against, uh, I, I think, admirably. Uh, now, whether he did anything whatsoever to reduce its swamp-like character is another matter. Um, I did want to, uh, you know, mention quickly, though, I think in the, in the race, so the challenger, Harriet Hageman, has not gotten uh, a lot of the race is so much about Liz Cheney. It's Liz Cheney versus Trump that the challenger didn't get a lot of, uh, I don't think, national attention or we don't know a lot about her. I did actually interview her once uh, years ago for a totally different story. She's an attorney uh, doing some work with this organization called the New Civil Liberties Alliance that I think does excellent work on uh, fighting uh, COVID restrictions and um, some Title IX abuses and some other things. And she was uh, she was representing a, a client in a in a Title IX dispute on uh, college campuses. So any, anyway, my, my mm-hmm. point being that I, I don't know that she's I don't know what her views are on you know stop the steal and Trumpism and all that. It might be the case that she has policy views that I that are far more in line with with my own views or maybe even your views in some ways, Brianna. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to see, and we'll we'll try to get her on the show. But uh, it's always important to there's two people, right? It's not mm-hmm. there's. Liz Cheney lost, someone else won, and it it could very well be that the other person, it's not really about Trumpism the way it was was shown to be. So we'll try to get her on the show. Uh, Then before we go, we did want to give an update on uh, a Sarah Palin race. Sarah Palin advanced in her primary for Alaska's at-large congressional district. So that's interesting. 
Sarah Palin may be getting recycled back into the mix. Yeah, How do you feel what, about that, Priyana? What is old is new. We've got Cheney's in the news, Palin's in the news. Uh, the, uh, Joe, the Biden family never went away. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's, it's a little deja vu and a little frustrating to feel like we are really controlled by political dynasties. I mean, it's, it's a testament to how important name recognition is above almost anything else in American politics today. Obviously, it didn't save Liz Cheney from actually uh, being defeated this time around. But, you know, her point was that she won her primary uh, before with 70-odd percent of the vote, largely, I would argue, because of the name recognition uh, and because of her uh, father's fame or, shall I say, infamy. So, yeah, we'll see what happens here. We'll we'll see what uh, the 2022 version of Sarah Palin looks like, uh, and I'll, I'll get my old, um, my own cup out, my old cup out from when we had our election day party in law school. <laughs> All of the Obama cups were gone, so I have a Sarah, Sarah Palin John McCain cup in my closet right now. You see, what, you see the one I'm drinking, uh, my coffee cup today says, think positive uh, from my wife. So, so that's, what's, uh, that's what's on my mind right now, but we're going to tell you what's on our radars coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago has put new scrutiny on the FBI and whether it's an institution that deserves the public trust. To some, the question of whether the FBI is untrustworthy and should be abolished is a secondary question to whether uh, they should defend the institution as it carries out what many believe is a warranted investigation into classified documents with which Trump took upon leaving the White House, and which the National Archives and Records Administration has been trying to secure since it realized documents were missing in May of 2021. To this camp, the facts are clear. Important correspondence, including correspondence with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, went missing. Trump's team dragged its feet returning the requested documents. There was some threat that confidential documents could be destroyed after reporting that Trump had torn up some documents in violation of the law and that members of his team had mishandled and deleted electronic files. Moreover, their concern that Mar-a-Lago, a public resort, was not a secure location for these sensitive documents. Thus, despite Trump lawyers cooperating with requests to search the room containing the files in question back in June and complying with a request to further secure the room holding said documents, as well as a request for some surveillance footage, the August 8th search warranted was, in that camp's eyes, justified. But to others, the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago is seen as a witch hunt. Trump was substantially cooperating with the investigation, they argue, and the unprecedented nature of the intrusion into a former president's home is not consistent with what he is accused of having taken. They point to Hillary Clinton's mishandling of classified information and the fact that FBI Director Jim Comey at the time identified seven email chains classified at the top secret slash special access program level. And although liberals are quick to point out how hypocritical many Republicans are in defending Trump when they urge the DOJ to lock Hillary up, conservatives point out that Hillary was not, in fact, locked up or prosecuted at all. Former Secretary of State, one of the president's most important advisors on foreign policy and national security, had a server in her basement that had information that was collected from our most sensitive assets, and it was not protected by anyone. And that's not a crime? That's outrageous. 
So remember that. Welcome to Cross Country, everybody. It is that sentiment that has many Americans asking tonight whether we have a two-tiered justice system in this country. Hillary Clinton was never held accountable for her private email server, but now we see an unprecedented raid at former President Donald Trump's private residence. What is your view on the FBI and why they decided to raid uh, the former president's property? I think they're just a mafia, you know, being uh, ordered by Ray. And after this man, our ex-president, for so long, they're trying to find any kind of dirt they can pull up on him. This is insane. I never see this happening in the United States. Biden has to go to jail. Hunter is the one FBI has to go and get it. Everybody hates him on the left. I mean, he's the only person here that can really, you know, put these guys in jail and really drain the swamp. And that's basically, I mean, this has been going on now for over six years. Ever since he came down the escalator, they've been after him. Yesterday was the ultimate. We've never seen anything like that in my life. I believe that they're trying to make it so he cannot run. The FBI is facing a credibility crisis. The unprecedented nature of the raid, which no one, right or left, contests as anything other than highly unusual, has caused a number of conservatives to even call for the FBI to be abolished. Candace Owens and Marjorie Taylor Greene were two high-profile conservatives making this claim last week. And last week on Rising, I argued that the left abolitionist movement should exploit this moment in which conservatives express skepticism of the police to own this issue and push forward legislation that would advance long-term abolitionist goals. After all, as I explained, the FBI has overwhelmingly targeted marginalized groups, civil rights protesters, communists, and labor activists, and not necessarily right-wing groups like the KKK. 85% have been targeted to the, to the left, and only 15% of resources typically go to more right-wing extremist groups. I received a great deal of pushback from liberals, many of whom insisted that I was too naive or too stupid to understand that Marjorie Taylor Greene was acting in bad faith, even though I, of course, said as much repeatedly in the very radar they critiqued. The important thing they insisted was that Trump be prosecuted, prevented from running again due to a legal technicality. That argument, of course, validates what many Trump supporters, like the ones we just heard, believe, that the investigation itself is a bad faith attempt to thwart Trump legally, where he can't be thwarted politically. Now, I'm sympathetic to concerns about the consequences of a second Trump term. Although Trump promised to lower the deficit, drain the swamp, and bring jobs back from overseas, all laudable goals. The national debt rose nearly $7.8 trillion during his time in the White House. He neglected his promise to curb the offshoring of jobs, and the COVID relief package he signed was stuffed with pork for the business owned, uh, businesses owned by Trump's biggest donors. Moreover, he offered no solutions to the health care crisis, the mass incarceration crisis, or our bloated defense budget. It goes without saying that my political goals do not align with Trump's. But my political goals also do not align with the empowerment of the federal police arm, which has, in fact, regardless of whether you think Trump has broken the law, been, uh, been a, uh, an organization that historically overreaches and has been used as a political tool. 
If Trump has, in fact, violated the law, the Department of Justice is capable of investigating Trump without the FBI. There are numerous other agencies under its purview. So given that Trump's accountability is not contingent on the existence of the FBI, at least in its current form, and given the historical trend of the FBI doing very little in the way of elite accountability, while it does a great deal to derail grassroots movements, why is so much of the left so stuck on defending these cops? Or at best, why are movements like the Defund the Police movement so disinterested in taking the opportunity to make inroads on their core goal? I, for one, am concerned that the left is cheering the fact that Trump is being investigated for possible violations of the Espionage Act in particular. It's the same law used to intimidate media as well as sources who have provided important information to the public, according to reporting by The Intercept. Trump's DOJ convicted reality winner to five years under the Espionage Act for leaking a classified document to The Intercept. In 2018, a CIA software developer named Joshua Schulte, who worked on WikiLeaks hacking tools, was charged under the Espionage Act. He faces 80 years in prison. Whistleblower and former drone pilot Daniel Hale was raided by the FBI in 2014 after he leaked classified documents making public America's unaccountable, unaccountable drone program, targeting and killing people around the world, including U.S. citizens. The Trump administration prosecuted him under the Espionage Act, and he was sentenced to three years. Of course, unlike these figures, Trump has not acted altruistically here. No one is arguing that Trump has taken these conf confidential documents in order to expose overreaches by our military. But given the broader context of how these laws are typically deployed to attack altruistic parties, it strikes me as extremely short-sighted not to take advantage of the opening created by disgruntled Trump supporters and principled conservatives alike who have long been concerned about deep state overreach. Here's Professor Alex Vitale, author of End of Policing, making the left case on democracy now. So what are you calling for? Well, I think we need to, you know, use this rhetorical opening to raise up some existing efforts to try to actually rein in the power of the FBI. You've got uh, groups like Defending Rights and Dissent that's trying to rework the FBI First Amendment Protection Act that John Conyers introduced in the 1980s to restrict the FBI's political policing powers. I think we need to look at the Breathe Act introduced by Ayanna Presley and others that would uh, reduce funding for federal law enforcement and shift those resources into positive uh, on-the-ground public safety programs. We need to look at efforts to end the war on drugs by groups like the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, we need to get the FBI and federal law enforcement out of using RICO statutes to go after young people in urban areas. The uh, Decriminalizing Neighborhood Network is developing campaigns to rethink the use of the RICO Act. So there, there really are efforts underway across the country to reduce the power and scope of the FBI in ways that limit their ability to demonize and criminalize those on the left and those who've been left out of the neoliberal consensus. 
clearly there is a left response to calls to abolish or reform the FBI that cannot be described as a capitulation to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Although I was accused of moving right to work with her on this issue, if the left leads on legislation to address this issue, it has the opportunity to call Marjorie to the mat, to either prove her to be a bad faith operator or, in the alternative, to secure a useful vote from her in passing something meaningful. And here's why this is important. As founder and executive director of the Civil Rights Corps, Alec Karakastanis argued recently, the vast supermajority of search warrant raiders are brutal, unnecessary invasions of the homes of poor families, usually for drugs. It's what killed Breonna Taylor. Much of the rampant abuse of home raiders by armed cops is geared towards stealing the property of mostly poor people. If you don't know about civil forfeiture, it will blow your mind. He went on to tell the story of how, while working at a public defender's office, his very poor clients kept telling him the same story. Quote, they would be walking down the street and D.C. police would stop them, search them at gunpoint, tell them to open their wallets and take all the cash they had. The wildest part? The D.C. police would then send them a letter saying that if they wanted to challenge the police, they would need to either pay $250 or 10% of the amount taken, whichever was more. So if the police took $10 or $20 from someone, the person would need to pay $250 to even have the right to challenge the cops in court. If you couldn't pay, the cops kept your money. Now, to understand the scope of this problem, you should know that cops take more money from people in civil asset forfeiture than in all burgl burglaries combined in the United States. Think about that. And think about this other anecdote from Alec about a case he litigated and won here in D.C., his client was an 11-year-old girl who was taking a shower before bed when the D.C. police burst into her bathroom, pulled back the curtain, and pointed guns at her naked body. Cops said they found a little marijuana on her dad two weeks before, but her dad did not live in the apartment with her. Uh, uh, most of now the, the blatantly illegal raids where zero evidence tied the family's home uh, to the crime were black families, at least 99.2% were the homes of black families. And there is next to no accountability for this kind of behavior. Now, we don't know much yet about the extent of Trump's wrongdoing, but we know more than enough about the abuses of law enforcement, particularly abuses by the FBI. And in my opinion, it's deeply negligent to miss an opportunity to respond to a call to protect the substantive rights of the people because but Trump. He's caused enough harm already, I say. Don't let Trump derangement system derail an opportunity to deal a real blow to an institution that has caused much more harm than one very bad president, especially when accountability for Trump is not contingent on protecting harmful institutions. So, Robbie, I just wanted to revisit this again because I feel like we've had more development in terms of uh, potential options for the left uh, and how they could respond and the kinds of legislation that's kind of already out there and could be seized upon in this moment. And I also want to dis disentangle this idea that holding Trump accountable is contingent on the existence of the FBI in its current form. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. I've said this. It's amazing to watch um, you know, le some leftists or progressive people who are so wrapped up in, yeah, it's TDS wrapped up in being anti-Trump that they d don't want to even agree with Republicans when Republicans are saying things that they profess to believe. 
who cares if it's in bad faith to some degree? I mean, sure, I'll, I'll call it out for being in bad faith when I think it is. I think Republicans, if they're going to rail against law enforcement and FBI and all those other organizations that I wish had had some accountability, then yes, please vote against them the next time it comes up for a vote. They never do it. I wish they do it next time. But And then the left can call them out when they fail to vote along the lines of the things they're saying now. But as long as we're all on the same, or we all have the same immediate goal that these, uh, these organizations don't have enough accountability and have been used in the service of harassing not just the most powerful man in the country, but also working people, minorities, et cetera, everyone, just common citizens. It's, a, it's always a threat um, that you could, you, know, you could trip up, you could do something you don't even know is wrong or illegal, or you could be the victim of civil, uh, civil asset forfeiture is, is a horrifying it's thing horrible. libertarians have been railing against for forever. Um, people I actually wrote something, and I'll probably do this for Radar next week, Brianna, something kind of connected to civil asset forfeiture uh, for reason, but there's so many cases of people, you know, you, you could be, the police could search your apartment and not charge you with a crime because they're looking for someone else, they have the wrong apartment, or they're looking for a friend of yours or something, not charge you with a crime, but they'll take any, if you have cash, let's say you, you know, work a job that pays cash, they'll take the cash. And then you have to, you have to, the burden of, of, of evidence sort of falls to you to argue to them that they have to give it back to you, right. which is virtually impossible to do. It's such a stunning, stunning abuse of people's, of people's rights. And, and, and there's, nothing, there's nothing ideologically at stake for conservatives or liberals or anyone to defend this. It's just theft. It's just theft. So let's, uh, right. you know, let's work together when we can to reform it. That's absolutely right. And just one last piece of this is that I, when I have been speaking to people about this over the last week or so, uh, I had a, a, an interesting exchange with uh, Cenk Uyghur over at the Young Turks, who substantively came around to a lot of my argument about why it isn't kind of going to the right to meet Marjorie Taylor Greene, but you know, having, if you put forward your own legislation, having the right kind of meet you where you are and advancing the solutions that you think are best from a left perspective, there was still this lingering feeling that, well, if it jeopardizes this current investigation of Trump, it's just not worth it. But when I look at that clip of those Trump supporters protesting outside of Mar-a-Lago and how there is such a credibility crisis around the investigation as it is, it strikes me as being true that having uh, uh, some critique of the FBI as an institution and validating some concerns about the FBI's overreaches, which are true, might help to actually bolster public confidence in a pursuit of Trump or whoever else ends up coming down the pike. Because what's happening right now is liberals are all but saying exactly what the conservatives outside of Mar-a-Lago are saying, right? That this is, it doesn't matter if, you know, this is just a technicality. It's important to stop Donald Trump from running. They're very explicit about how their goals are very much what the Republicans fear. Of course, liberals feel like it's justified. You know, who cares if you have to get Al Capone on tax evasion? At least you got Al Capone. He's a bad guy. The, the ends justify the means. Whereas Republicans see this as a fundamental, as fundamentally evidence that the system is broken. And I would argue that the way to, to, to bridge that gap, to get the outcomes that you want, which is to hold Trump accountable if, in fact, he's proven to have done something illegal, um, is to rehabilitate the institution that's conducting the investigation. No, I'm glad you said it. I, I saw your uh, the replies you got on, on Twitter. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of love for you from your own side. I love my reply, guys. They're the best. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to your radar next, Robbie.
What's on your radar today, Robbie? Well, there was a story in Time magazine a few days ago that provoked widespread fury among virtually everyone who read it, myself included, and for good reason. The story was titled, Inside the Massive Effort to Change the Way Kids Are Taught to Read. And it concerned efforts to move toward and away from various methods of teaching kids to read. Now, these methods largely fall into just two categories. There's phonics, which mostly works, and then there's everything else, which sort of doesn't work. Uh, Want to guess which method is preferred by activist teachers who think it's their mission to infuse the curriculum with social justice themes, who are more concerned with instructing their students on what to think rather than how to think? Well, it's the non-phonics method, of course, the method that produces lagging reading proficiencies among kids everywhere it's practiced. Now, the Time article cites the story of Kareem Weaver, who's a teacher in Oakland, Oakland, California, who also works with the NAACP. Weaver said that for years, his fourth and fifth grade reading students used a phonics-based method, and the results were terrific. But some teachers, and they found it tedious, and this is something I've actually heard from a lot of teachers, even ones who support phonics, they find teaching it tedious. And others, in this case, used even more dramatic language, according to Weaver. He said the teachers described phonics as, quote, dehumanizing and colonizing an example of the man telling us what to do. So in 2015, the teachers in Oakland, they won, and the phonics-based curriculum was thrown out. Those who wanted to fight for social justice, they figured out this new progressive way of teaching reading was the way, says Weaver. That's a, so that's according to Weaver from this article. So you can guess what happened next. The reading achievements of kids, particularly minority kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, suffered terribly. Statewide, California, Latino fourth graders are now 27 points behind white students, and black students were 37 points behind. Now, Weaver has been waging a campaign to reintroduce phonics to Oakland. Statewide, however, school superintendent Tony Thurmond has been reluctant to push phonics as the standard, even as other states are moving in that direction, because guess what? Phonics actually works. But he said, we are not promoting a one-size-fits-all approach in California. That's according to the LA School Report, quoting that Superintendent Thurmond. That's been tried before. Our state is too large, it's too diverse. Now look, in theory, I'm all for allowing different schools to experiment with different methods of teaching students to read in order to find out which one's best. But this experiment has already been conducted, which is why private schools, which don't get funding automatically and must win tuition dollars by offering their customers, the parents, an education that is actually worth something, private schools by and large prefer the phonics method. This debate isn't new, by the way. In fact, it's been going on for like 100 years. The same dynamic keeps replaying itself. Elite schools of education and activist teachers prefer other methods that have gone by different names. First it was called look and say, then whole language, then whole word, etc. So this was the theory behind the Dick and Jane instructional reading materials that were popular in the U.S. in the 1940s and 1950s. The look-say methodology, which is used in the Dick and Jane books, taught kids to memorize words and identify them by sight. Now, this method is actually a miserable one for many reading learners. Go ask your grandparents about how they liked learning to read this way. You'll hear horror stories from them, most likely. Now, whole language reading emerged much later in the 1980s and 1990s and put an emphasis on the love of reading itself, on diverse texts, working out the meaning of the words, etc. Now, some of those ideas actually have plenty of merit, especially for kids who are already proficient at reading. Fostering a love of literature and reading for its own sake is great, but we need to teach the fundamentals first. And those fundamentals, the thing that, again, actually works is phonics. Now, phonics involves teaching kids to read by sounding out the letters in individual words. 
It's the philosophy that undergirds the most successful learn to read storybook of all time, Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat, which came about to replace the Dick and Jane books um, from the 40s, 50s, 60s. Now, it works best for people who already know English, but it also actually works best for many immigrants for whom English or even English-like languages are new, because learning to sound out letters is a surer strategy than memorizing whole words. So it's amazing we keep having to relitigate this every few years because phonics has actually produced markedly better outcomes than the alternatives. As one neuroscience who, neuroscientist who studied the issue told the New York Times in 2020, the evidence for phonics is about as close to conclusive as research on complex human behavior can get. Between 2017 and 2019, only two states, Washington and Mississippi, increased their average reading scores on standardized tests despite having many students who were under the poverty line. Can you guess which approach the states used? Phonics. In part, because of their success, New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently declared that city schools would go back to a phonics-based curriculum, because that's the one that works best at the only thing that matters, actually teaching kids to read. I think that's why this Time Magazine story really struck a nerve. So many families understand that phonics is the best way to teach kids to read, and many teachers agree. But for some reason, elite schools of education and the ideological activist teachers they spawn, well, they don't like phonics very much. And so they fight it, even though the evidence for it, it's just overwhelming at this point. So I'll conclude by saying this. If you truly care about social justice, if you truly want to help disadvantaged young people improve their outcomes in reading, it's just about the most important basic thing you can do. Kids who have fallen behind in reading by the fourth and fifth grade, they're in for a world of suffering for no end of difficulties with high school, with getting into college, finding productive employment, and so on. If fancy private schools want to experiment with educational theories and try a different approach with kids whose parents understand exactly what they're getting into and exactly what they're paying for, fine by me. But public schools, which are paid for via public dollars, they have to stick to what's tried and true, and we know what that is. For some nearly incomprehensible reason, this has become a weirdly partisan fight with many conservative voices in the pro-phonics camp, many progressive activists in the anti-phonics camp. But everything doesn't need to be this way. We don't have to filter everything down to this horrible death match between right and left, between red and blue. We can just do what's, what works. And in this case, what works would actually be best for social justice. So I'm getting hooked on phonics again, Brianna. I don't know about you or, or, or which uh, method you used um, uh, when you were learning to read. But uh, I didn't if learn you to read in school. I learned okay. to read before I ever got to school, uh, and it was probably more of a, a holistic method because my parents just read to me a whole lot. I don't remember learning to read. I just, we just read a lot. But, you know, you asked, Robbie, you know, why this is a weirdly partisan battle. I think some of the framing, even the context of your radar points to why it's a partisan battle. Conservatives not always wrongly, point to the idea that states should be workshops for ideas that don't come down from the federal government. We have California, one state that is, or maybe several other states, but the, you focus on your story in California, who have chosen to try this alternative method, I presume because not activist teachers, but school boards and whoever makes these kind of decisions and parents in conjunction, decided to move to this method of uh, uh, education. Apparently, according to the reporting that you're laying out here, it didn't work, and many states 
as you pointed to in New York, are moving back to the traditional method. I'm, I'm confused as to why this should be a partisan story, why this is about activists who are what. Isn't this exactly what Republicans hope happen? That people try things out. If they don't work, they can revert. Each state can have an opportunity to do what it wants to do. Mississippi, you point to as having improved outcomes, one of two states with a traditional method uh, that has improved outcomes. I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement, given that we have 50 states. But nevertheless, Mississippi typically ranks lowest on all metrics is one of the poorest states. It's neck and neck with West Virginia all the time for the poorest state in the union. It has a lot of ed educational uh, uh, obstacles to overcome as a consequence of all of the things families are going through in that state. If they've seen improvement, I herald it. But I, I'm not really sure what the issue is here or why it's a political one. I might make a different choice about how I would want my children to be taught, but shouldn't I just let that play out in my locality and advocate for what I want on a local level? Why is this a national concern? Well, I don't think we're structurally disagreeing. I, I note I never said anywhere that the federal government should force states or anyone else to move to you know, whatever standard. Yes, I, I agree. We should let states and local municipalities experiment. I, I'm just saying, from my standpoint, from looking at all the data that the experiment has been run, and I would urge, you know, as a as a as a citizen, I would urge uh, you know, whatever educational authorities I'm under to uh, to move to the phonics method, as they are urging in California. Um, it just has it has better results, as as you just noted, Mississippi lagging in a lot of lot of indicators, and had really remarkable success with some very disadvantaged kids using this method. So I, I, I don't want it to be a partisan battle, and it, it shouldn't be. And I, I think the people making it a partisan battle are the, are the anti-phonics side, or the, the uh, teachers' unions have been very uh, opposed to this. Um, uh, schools of education keep trying to justify their existences by coming up with more creative well, new well, methods to teach things and do everything that don't minute, work, Robbie, and the parents don't like and don't it, want. But you're kind of, it, when you say teachers' unions are against that, you said in 50 states, uh, the overwhelming majority, it seems, are still doing a phonics method. Mississippi is still doing a phonics method. New York is shifting back into a phonics method. There are teachers' unions in Mississippi. There are teachers' unions in New York. It doesn't seem accurate to me to say that this is a teachers' union on one side, activist teachers on one side, and somehow, I don't know, the good guys on the other side. It seems to me that there's a diversity of opinion that shouldn't be politicized as you know, this is a, some kind of a woke issue that's coming from groups that have been vilified by the right as somehow a problem. Look, teachers are up against a lot of challenges across the country, funding challenges, challenges with COVID, challenges with the economic crisis that parents are going to and instability in the home. A one in five homeless people uh, is, is, a, is a child. I mean, there's a lot of issues going here in this country. And it just strikes me as, I don't know, a little bit uncharitable to frame this as like a, an activist teacher's issue as opposed to, look, this is a work, states workshop these issues like the way conservatives really appreciate federalism allows them to do. And folks are coming to some conclusions about what works and what doesn't work. And I really appreciate the reporting that seems to be clarifying that, hey, sometimes uh, if it ain't broke, you don't got to fix it. I think it's a, actually a, a kind of a hilarious example of, I mean, you're right that this kind of, you know, wokeness sort of debate taking over everything. Like people have been arguing about this since for, for literally 100 years. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was an argument about it 100 years ago. There was a big argument about it um, in, the, in the 60s when Dr. Seuss burst onto the scene with, uh, really with, with specifically with a go back to phonics methodology. Dr. Mm -hmm. Seuss, uh, Theodore Geisel, the author of those books, was really uh, persuaded by the evidence that, um, that teaching reading by sounding out words would be better and how can I make that 
fun and interesting for for children and came up with these books purported to do that was widely successful then again you had this debate in kind of the early 90s so it keeps cropping up so now because everything has to adopt this kind of wokeness framing there's a lot of and sure maybe you can you can say the the uh, the pro phonics camp or the the opponents of what they're doing are are you know painting the other side as this is woke reading or something although i think very much so the opponents of phonics based reading have consciously leaned into a well we care about social justice and phonics is to is to rote to kind of leave room for for all of that stuff and i'm just saying that i i don't agree with that because one of the first um goals of a of an actually social of a, of a movement that actually wants to foster social justice should be teaching disadvantaged kids to read effectively and the evidence pretty clear for for, for decades now in, in my view from looking at it but um but it's a you're right that it's not it, it didn't initially it obviously didn't have anything to do with wokeness 50 years ago the last time they were arguing about it but everything must be kind of processed through that through that framing in order to make it to the national the national radar as it were yeah well thank you for uh, injecting a little uh, uh, topical diversity into the into the radars this week Ravi <laughs> well my pleasure thank you <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this Russian President Vladimir Putin fired back at the West and its European allies over Russian sanctions. I'm going to paraphrase what he said here on the world stage. The Ukrainian situation, he said, shows that the U.S. wants to prolong this conflict. This is just what they do in provoking for conflict in Asia, Africa, and South America. He then pointed to Taiwan, saying that the U.S. adventure to Taiwan is not just the actions of one irresponsible politician. It's a conscious and targeted strategy of the United States. States to destabilize the region and the world. It's evident, he's, he said, that Western global elites are attempting to distract their own citizens from very dire socioeconomic problems, living standards, poverty, etc. And then he touted his relationship with China for, as he said, standing up for their own point of view. And just this morning, we're learning that the Chinese military will send troops to Russia for joint exercises. NBC reports that the exercises are, quote, unrelated to the current international and regional situation, according to China's defense ministry. Meanwhile, Western media is giving Ukrainian President Zelensky the royal treatment. Zelensky gave an exclusive interview with The Washington Post and made headlines after he suggested that countries within the European Union should ban any Russian citizens from traveling. He suggested, quote, a ban on the entry of all citizens of the Russian Federation to the European Union. The Finnish prime minister uh, is on the side of Zelensky, apparently, and has drastically cut Russian tourist visas. Regenerative Russian people didn't start the war, but at the same time we have to realize that they are supporting uh, the war. I think it's not right that Russian citizens can travel, enter Europe, Schengen area, uh, be tourists, see the sightseeing while Russia is killing people in Ukraine. It's wrong. However, German Prime Minister Olaf Scholz rebuked the travel ban idea on Russian citizens, saying, quote, this is not the war of the Russian people. It is Vladimir Putin's war. So there are a couple uh, things there I, I wanted to discuss. So I, I agree with the German Prime Minister. Um, you know, what good is it to punish Russian citizens for what their government is doing? That's the kind of collective guilt or collective punishment you know, that I think all people should really oppose. And also it doesn't, I don't think, serve any 
tactical goal. Probably the people, the Russian people most interested in visiting other European countries are probably more likely to support or be sympathetic to what Ukraine is going for, or what they're, they're trying to get out of Russia. We want to we want to trap them in Russia, keep them in Russia, keep them from interacting with your other European or Western um, people or policies or media sources. That's just a recipe for keeping for keeping Russian people under the thumb of their their authoritarian administration. And that's like the that's the uh, Cuban embargo strategy. Doesn't work very well. We've tried it a million times, just doesn't work. Yeah, it's, well, I think on its face, kind of morally bankrupt. I don't think it's fair to judge the citizens of a, an enormous nation for the acts of its leaders, especially when the West has so many critiques of democracy in the country to try to impute what Putin does to, to the citizenry when you're at the same time saying that he's, you know, a dictator and an autocrat and he hasn't been elected democratically seems to me it's an admission that, of course, the people didn't have a lot of say in it. And obviously, when you think about what that would mean if America was judged by a similar standard with such a bifurcated country, with half of the country being very supportive of kind of Trumpism and half of the country not, you know, some foreign country saying because of Trump you can't travel or because of Biden you cannot travel would certainly rankle uh, a lot of folks here at home. Right. I, I guess the question is, do you think it is about trying to create dissent within Russia from people who might have a passive disinterest or distaste for Putin, hoping that it irritates folks enough that there is more internal pressure that Putin has to contend with? Uh, because of the travel ban. Yeah, that's the strategy. That strategy just clearly never works. Mm. I don't know why we keep going to it. We we want to we want to reward dissension in in Russia, not like make Russians so miserable that they're going to rise up. Like that's not going to happen. We, yeah. We've gone through this so many times. I will say, you know, as for um, for Putin's remarks earlier that you paraphrased, um, while you and I have both been critical of steps the U.S. government has taken to get us to this point and <clears throat> what the what the U.S. response has been. I still don't love hearing from Vladimir Putin this all, you know, blame the U.S. that, oh, we're, we're provoking conflict. Okay, well, you're the person with the troops in the other country. So, let, like, who, who is provoking conflict here? Um, I think that that should be a reminder that, you know, whatever the missteps of the U.S., you know, in, in crafting, uh, in, in how we handled NATO, et cetera, and in our continuing to to fund the Ukrainian defense without pushing for any kind of diplomatic resolution, all fine to condemn. This is still ultimately on one person that we're, you know, having this conflict play out. Vladimir Putin ordered the troops to invade. So now we dispute, obviously, over whose territory it is, but war is never the answer. War is never, should never be the, the resort and uh, they chose this. Nobody else made them. They being Putin's regime chose this. Nobody made them. They did it. And now here we are. Well, look, here's the issue. And this came up recently when we were talking about the member of the African People's Socialist Party whose home was raided uh, last month and who has been accused and named as uh, in, in this investigation as a, a Russian proxy a, a Russian asset. And the reason is that he is articulating a criticism of the U.S. government that certainly no black person needs to be spoon-fed from Vladimir Putin, but which mm -hmm. is a line of attack that 
Putin has been using, right? So I was asked this question in the context of the 2019-2020 primary season. Brianna, what do you make of the fact that so many black Americans are being duped into sharing Russian misinformation posts on Facebook that point to the ways that the American government has uh, failed its black population? I mean, I don't know how to answer that other than it's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that Russia is exploiting a true fact, uh, the answer is to make the underlying condition not true, not to accuse people of falling for rep- pro- Russian propaganda when the propaganda, it's not propaganda if it's just opportunistically exploiting real conditions on the ground. So, you know, I think I feel similarly about some of the other characterizations of Vladimir Putin here. Vladimir Putin is, of course, a but for a cause of invading Ukraine. I also am, you know, hesitant to you know just wave away the broader critique of you know the desire to for the west to distract from economic struggles, high gas prices, um, an impending food crisis, all of these things, which of course Putin has played a role in creating. But I, I don't want to be so reactionary that I'm not able to acknowledge the truth just because Putin also happens to have said it. And obviously that's not to say the total sum uh, of Putin's comments, I agree, are true. But I do think that he is adept at threading a needle and lacing enough kind of reality and with a lot of his statements that, in a way that makes him, makes him seem credible to the desired audience. Right. And, and the longer this goes on, the more the Ukrainian opposition, the more Zelensky's government takes on. And I, I don't want to draw a, a complete equivalency by any stretch of the imagination. Again, as I said, I condemn Putin for doing this. I think this is his fault. In, he's the most direct moral blamed person here. But Zelensky, you know, in outlawing a rival political faction, centralizing the media, um, he, he's a very effective uh, kind of uh, propaganda figure, all sorts of, you know, Western celebrities, uh, interviews with them, meetings with them, uh, is, is ruling in a way that we would certainly criticize if we were not so myopically um, focused on, on maintaining his power and, and continuing to, to, to support um, this person, we would we would condemn plenty of this, and it, it it should not be it should not stop us from condemning illiberalism on our own side just because it's on our own side. Especially when standing against illiberalism is the thing we're claiming to do. I mean, mm-hmm. what is the principle at stake if our if if the the person we're defending on our own side you know increasingly comes to resemble the kind of thing we say we're against? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, agreed. Mm. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Talks over Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act seemed stalled earlier this summer, but as we know, a side deal between Senators Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin was being made that put the IRA back on track to being passed. The deal would have included overhauling the permitting process for energy infrastructure, allowing for approval of a gas pipeline in Manchin's home state of West Virginia. But this key part was left out despite reassurances to Manchin and opponents on both sides of the aisle aren't sold, which could actually end up derailing the private deal. Here to discuss what all this means for Manchin is journalist for the American Prospect, Lee Harris. Lee, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. So tell us more about what was in uh, this this private deal to kind of, you know, whet uh, Joe Manchin's appetite for legislation. 
I mean, the first thing to say is that we still don't have bill text. So anyone who tells you exactly um, that they know exactly what's coming in it um, uh, is fooling you because only Manchin and Schumer seem to know exactly what's in it. But this leaked one pager that we do have says, first of all, that the permitting deal would prioritize 25 or more critical energy infrastructure projects. So that could be critical minerals, electrical transmission, renewables, fossil fuels. It also specifically has a line item for the Mountain Valley pipeline. That's the stalled natural gas pipeline in Manchin's home state of West Virginia that would carry Marcellus Shale, uh, Marcellus, Marcellus Shale natural gas um, to, to Virginia. And Important to note that not just um, investors in that project have given to not just Manchin, but also to Schumer, who was instrumental to this deal. Um, now, uh, the, overall, it's being called a permitting reform deal. And I think we should get into why some kind of center left Democrats or even progressives are potentially in favor of permitting. But the important thing to note here is that the deal takes more than 50 votes. That's why it was left out of reconciliation. It'll take all of progressives and then 10 more Republicans or progressives may defect. So the interesting thing we're seeing right now politically is that the deal could unravel given that it was this kind of backroom deal struck uh, between Manchin and Schumer, but both Republicans and progressives are increasingly d d describing qualms that they have with it. So the idea was that this, this deal was required, you know, that, that the IRA was contingent on, uh, that, that, that Manchin rather being on board with the IRA was contingent on this deal being passed, although there was nothing that he could do to actually, you know, guarantee that given that the IRA is already passed, is the belief that because it does have things that are advantageous for conservative interests in it, that he will be able to get people to cross the aisle to support him, even if some uh, progressives uh, aren't supportive. I, I saw, for example, you, you wrote that Rashida Tlaib said that handshake deals made by others in closed rooms do not dictate how I vote, and we sure as hell don't owe Joe Manchin anything now. He and his fossil fuel donors already got far too much in the IRA. Yeah, the belief is that the enormous amount of pressure for this bill from industry will see it across the finish line. Mm. And I think it's important to describe why um, the fossil fuel industry wants this bill so much right now. Because there are some Republicans who are bitter over the passage of IRA, which they didn't expect to happen. Lindsey Graham, for instance, said, I will not vote for a continuing resolution. That's the bill that it's supposed to be attached to. It's part of a political payback scheme. So Republicans are pretty bitter and some of them would be happy to defect. But mm. because, because they say, if we take the House, we can pass our own permitting bill um, on our own terms in a couple of months. However, they're under huge pressure from the fossil fuel industry to do this right now because gas producers really want to export American gas to Asia and especially Europe that has obviously been desperate for gas since the Ukraine war. So since they see energy traders making a killing right now, U.S. producers really want to get in on the action. And it's interesting. It's really a gas push. So oil traders like Chesapeake, which was kind of synonymous with the shale oil boom, have completely ditched oil to get into gas right now. They're gearing up for this huge global gas export boom. But in order to do that, in order to scale up gas exports, they need more big gas infrastructure like liquefied natural gas terminals. Um, and those terminals are built to last, you know, 25 years. Um, anyway, the, the worry from um, both a climate perspective, but also just from a financial perspective, is that there's this mismatch between short-term and long-term desire to scale up gas, mm. where 
Europe needs tons of gas right now, but it's also trying to get off gas in the long term. So when this crisis fades, if we build out big new gas infrastructure, that leaves us potentially with stranded assets. Um, and I think in that world, U.S. producers will just try to create sustained demand for gas, right? They'll just try to force a market. Anyway, that all that huge desire to build out gas infrastructure right now explains why Republicans are under so much pressure to go with this permitting bill, despite their reservations and their desire to do their, their own version. There's also an interesting dynamic on the Democrat side we should get into. Please. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us. <laughs> so, um, again, like I said, we don't know a whole lot about what's in this permitting bill, but there's a set of um, of, of climate people who say, rightly, that in order to deliver on the huge financing available to set off this clean energy boom um, that, that was passed into law with the IRA, we're going to need permitting reform, right? There's now tons of money to build clean energy infrastructure, but the process is still gun gummed up with tons of red tape. And that has a truth to it. Um, it. It does take a huge amount of time to get projects approved. So those a set of kind of clean energy wonks are saying, finally, um, permitting reform and, and, and the one pager that I mentioned does include things like uh, shortening the amount of time that um, uh, that a project can be reviewed under key environmental laws like NEPA. So without knowing a whole lot more, this a, a, a contingent of clean energy people have basically said, we love it. It's permitting reform. Let's pass it. If there's some fossil fuel infrastructure that gets mixed in, we'll also see clean energy infrastructure like electrical transmission lines and other big scale clean energy. But that seems like a really dangerous bargain because mm. permitting reform can have tons of spin put on it. I mean, President Trump undertook permitting reform when he rolled back a bunch of environmental laws. And the thing to remember about these environmental laws that can be that can cause delays and red tape in standing up energy infrastructure is that they're also the only tools that poor people have to, to fight back when a big new polluting project is proposed in their backyard. So it's kind of a double edged sword. Probably we do need permitting reform in order to stand up any kind of new energy infrastructure, including clean energy infrastructure. But on the other hand, environmental laws do protect the poor. And also, if you're a powerful energy interest, you've probably been able to use money to get a lot of what you want over the past decade. I mean, the whole fracking boom happened despite our supposedly, you know, impossible, tangled in red tape permitting process. Hmm. So anyway, that leaves this debate between environmental justice groups on one side who, who, who represent, you know, um, uh, poorer and blacker neighborhoods um, that don't want this stuff in their backyards saying, just opposing the permitting reform outright and kind of the climate wonk segment who say, no, we need some version of permitting reform. Let's just go with it. That's the kind of crude version of the standoff. What we really probably need is smart permitting reform. And we don't yet know what's in this bill. Mm -hmm. But all of that means that politically progressives uh, like uh, Rashida Tlaib, who my story mentions, who has a lot of Michiganders in her district uh, who say they're really sick of polluting infrastructure um, in their backyard, saying we're not going to just vote for this permitting bill that was a backroom deal between Manchin and Schumer anyway. 
And isn't it the case that, I mean, you mentioned the various kinds of communities that are disproportionately affected, but uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline is controversial in West Virginia as well because of the potential threat that it poses to uh, aquifers and water sources in the state. Uh, moreover, there's an argument that given you know how Democrats are celebrating the IRA as a climate bill, it's counterintuitive to say you're going to meet all these climate goals when the when the Mountain Valley pi Pipeline would have the, about the same, would result in the same amount of emissions equivalent to 26 U.S. coal plants or 19 million passenger vehicles a year. How does any Democrat who wants to celebrate the climate advantages of the IRA square the idea of also voting for this pipeline? I mean, you said it. The thing is, it's no huge mystery why Manchin was unwilling to vote for Build Back Better, unwilling to vote for the Democrats' climate and tax deal. And then when the progressive tax reforms were significantly scaled back and uh, child tax credits and, and a number of other wins for the welfare state and the most ambitious climate goals were taken out and instead it was loaded up with fossil fuel subsidies, uh, why he then uh, signed on to the bill entirely on his own terms. Actually, the, the permitting bill um, had the watermark of the American Petroleum Indus uh, uh, Institute, the, the the oil industry group, on it. So all of that's to say it's a real mixed bag of good and bad. It seems like it's really hard to model out how a bill this big and complex plays out. But, um, but I personally uh, set a lot of store by the modeling that says, including all of those uncertainties, this amount of investment in clean energy just sees a massive scale up in cheaper, cleaner energy over the next couple of decades. Hmm. Um, but it went hand in hand with a number of concessions to Manchin that those should be taken seriously. But doesn't that match the mood of the country, which is so gas prices focused, energy prices focused, you know, at a time where the Biden administration's um, sort of policies, I think, regarding that are very confused at, you know, on, on one hand, continuing to support Ukraine and, and keep, you know, keep the conflict kind of going, which is a big part of what we're experiencing. And then also, you know, going to other countries like Saudi Arabia and saying, hey, can you give us more gas? Although yeah. we're supposed to be getting off gas, all that, like it's, it's a short term. It's like, yes, we need to, we need more gasoline infrastructure. We need to bring down those prices. But long term, clearly the administration is saying, no, we're, you know, we're all about green. We're all about everything else. If this permitting bill goes through, I think one shorthand way to think about the deal that was struck over the last couple of weeks is domestically, it's a clean energy boom. And it also says to the fossil fuel industry, go make up all of the lost gas from the, the uh, Russian gas exports. Um, let the, U the U.S. become the global supplier of, of gas and fossil fuels to the world. Um, potentially as you lose your uh, domestic market for fossil fuels to the clean energy boom that we're setting off at home. I think in some ways that's, that's the trade-off that was worked out and there's certainly some hypocrisy to it. Yeah, I think that's such an important point for the entirety, I think, of this kind of gas crisis, the inflation crisis, and the ongoing conversation about prices at the pump, there has been a tendency to conflate uh, opening up pipelines and drilling in the United States with the ability to actually address that particular concern. And the issue is that a lot of the drilling that people are talking about in the U.S. is for natural gas or the kind of 
products that don't go into your car or that need to be refined elsewhere before going into your car. So the cause, the, the cause and effect that people are postulating between the idea of like drilling, baby drilling, <laughs> in, the, in the short term aren't calculated for that as as you explained Lee they are you know the push here is about taking advantage of international markets which you can say is an advantage for the United States for other you know economic broader economic reasons but isn't calculated to actually helping individual voters and consumers the way that democrats might be looking to as they head into a midterm season this is a, a fascinating story and i really appreciate the detail here in in your reporting and helping us to understand the procedural posture here thank you for joining us thanks so much we'll have more rising for you after this Organizers are warning Democrats not to take black voters for granted ahead of the midterms. That's according to recent reporting from The Hill's Cheyenne M. Daniels. Advocates who spoke to The Hill expressed frustration that the Democratic Party consistently overlooks black voters until it's too late. Polling released last month shows the black voters' top concern is, as expected, the economy. Nearly half of respondents said their financial situation is bad and that they've had difficulties paying for household expenses over the past year. Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Terrence Woodbury is CEO and founding partner of Hit Strategies, a public opinion research firm targeting young people and communities of color. And Malik Abdul is a Republican strategist. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Terrence, I'll, I'll start with you. You know, given that Black voters, according to this poll, their top concern is the economy, which you know matches um, with ev- everybody else. Basically, um, I-, I guess it's my question would be: Is it then, you know, when we're talking to organizers or activists um, around, um, I guess, black issues or minority issues, do they speak for the larger community if the larger community's top concerns, you know, closely map what the general population's top concerns are? Thank you so much for having me. You know, uh, we conduct, we've conducted over 300 focus groups and about 30,000 interviews with black voters since the 2020 election. And we're hearing very, very similar concerns. Black voters are acutely aware of the role that they play delivering this president to the White House and delivering Democrats uh, control over both chambers. And that awareness comes with expectation. That awareness comes with the with the expectation that Democrats will reduce the economic and social pains that black communities are facing. And frankly, I believe that this administration has a messaging problem more than a governing problem, because when we look at the economic priorities of the black community, this administration has in fact made significant progress on things like uh, like the child tax credit that reduced black child poverty by 20% raising federal minimum wage to $15. There's a half a million black federal employees whose minimum wage went up to $15. And so progress is happening. It is not enough. There is still significant pain in the black community, but it is incumbent on this administration over the next 80 days to tell black voters how they have made their lives materially better. Well, I, I want to stick with you with that for a second, Terrence, because you know you mentioned the t- child tax credit Democrats bragged about it having uh, child poverty. Then it, it expired, and it, they weren't able to get a continuation of the child tax credit in this latest uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act bill. Uh, you mentioned the federal $15 minimum wage. 
I applaud that effort, but the national $15 minimum wage was a core part of Biden's own agenda. It was a promise that he made to Bernie Sanders when Bernie Sanders uh, dropped out of the race without much of a fight. And, you know, that obviously has not come to fruition. And there are issues that disproportionately affect uh, black people that are also core to Biden's campaign promises, including the stimulus checks that are still front of mind for a lot of people, which never came through in their entirety, and this big promise to cancel student loan debt. Specifically, Biden said, and people have memory hold this, that he would cancel all student loan debt for graduates of historically black colleges and universities making under $125,000 a year. He's not done that or followed through on his promise to do a blanket $10,000 at least of cancellation for everyone across the board. So staring down the barrel of those kinds of concerns and the, that, that framing that shows that Biden seems to have reneged on many of these promises, you know, how do you see that? that playing out with voters in midterms? Yes, you know, I think that black voters have unfinished business in 2022, that, that, that because of the progress that has been made, when you look at student loans, while he has not forgiven student loans, uh, no one has had to pay a federal student loan since he's been president. And that is the first president that can say that. While well, he has well, not forgiven student loans, yeah. he has reduced the interest rates to 0% at a time where interest rates are rising. And so I'm not telling black voters to take his word for it. I'm telling them to look at his actions and his actions are progress and it is relief if it is not full, uh, full forgiveness. Yeah, of course, the student loan moratorium, he's threatening to lift it at the end of the month right before midterms. And it was, in fact, Donald Trump who instituted the moratorium in the first place. Malik, I want to bring you in here. What, what do you make of this uh, priority on the economy and whether or not Joe Biden has done enough to fulfill his own campaign promises, uh, much less meet the needs of the black public at this time? And so I actually approached this as someone who started looking at these things when I was a Democrat during the George Bush administration, when I was supporting Barack Obama and many of the criticisms that people had of the Barack Obama administration was that he was not focused enough. He didn't do enough for black people. It had the same thing happened under the Trump administration. And now we're here with the Biden administration. I actually think that Robbie touched on it um, a bit when he talked about that at the end of the day, the things that really impact the um, black community at least as far as what the federal government is able to do, we, our, our issues aren't much different than the rest of America. Yes, econ the economy actually ranks at the top of the list of our issues. But when we have these conversations, we typically center around those things like criminal justice reform, um, you know, police, uh, police reform and things like that. Sure, those things are actually important. But I think a number of the things that we talk about, like those particular things there, these are things that happen at the local level. So I think that what we have done, we have kind of carried out this notion that somehow the federal government but for federal intervention, things won't impact our lives. But almost all of the things that impact us, whether it's lower taxes, whether it's our schools, whether it's crime, all of these things actually happen at the local level. So I think there's a disconnect between what the federal government actually does and what the local government does. I can say that there are a number of things that the Biden administration has done around minor minority business development. Um, you can add the, the, the climate change. You can add the funding for HBCUs. A number of these things that the Biden administration has done, but they are consistent with what the federal government does when it comes to targeting communities. I don't know if there's going to be any sort of specific thing that is absolutely germane to the black community that the 
that the federal government itself does, even if we're talking about, you know, student loan cancellation, well, not every black person actually, in fact, most black people act, don't have student loan debt. That's important, but that's not something that the whole of black America is really focused on, which is why it doesn't rank well. Things like voter reform, all of those things, sure, they are great. You know, the, 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 the Biden administration definitely can focus on those things. But I really think we need to have open and honest conversations about what the federal government does, what our local government does, and acknowledge that many of the things that we care about are the same things that every, every other community in this country cares about. I do take that point, Malik. I will push back and say that black voters support student debt cancellation in higher rates than any other voters. 84% of black voters support student debt cancellation. And the reason being may be that black voters have a disproportionate amount of student debt, even though, of course, not all black voters have student debt, just like all white voters don't have student debt, just like all voters are not impacted by pretty much any policy you can pick from a list. But I do take your point that what affects black voters is largely what affects all voters. I don't know that that gets Biden off the hook, given his overall inconsistent um, uh, posit, you know, uh, polling numbers with respect to people's impression of how well he's done to serve the public. Obviously, he's having a better week this week with the passage of the IRA. And some people argue the fact that he has been off the grid a little bit uh, as he has been dealing with COVID. But the reality of the situation is that whether or not we're talking about these generalized things or more specific programs that are framed as black issues, like criminal justice issues, many people see Joe Biden as coming up short. Uh, you know, Terrence, at what point do we say, yes, we're talking about broad economic issues, but every single time I engage with family members, every single time I go into a comment section of a political video on a black website, I see people talking about two things. I see them talking about the stimulus checks, still saying, where's my stimmy, Joe Biden? You promised me my stim stimulus check. And they're talking about student debt cancellation. Is that really not a concern for, for you and, and people who are working on uh, mobilizing black voters? That months before midterms, Joe Biden is talking about lifting the moratorium that you um, so rightly kind of lauded. Absolutely. You know, and I think that economic uh, security, ec economic justice, cost of living, jobs and wages, while those are all very important issues to the black community, like all, uh, all communities, black voters are not a monolith. And so when you do look at the top issue priorities of black voters, Economy is always in the top three, but so is combating racism. Uh, so is healthcare. And so when we look at the broad issue, issue context here, there is, there, there's a broader story to tell beyond the, the advancements that he's made to try and shore up the economy, beyond creating over 6 million jobs. You gotta look at what he's done with criminal justice reform, because that was a primary issue going into the 2020 election, coming off of the summer of unrest coming off of the summer of, 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 of George Floyd's death, that was a top concern for black voters. And so when you look at what the Justice Department has done of banning chokeholds for federal officers, banning no-knock warrants for federal officers, establishing a national registry of police misconduct, and most important for black voters, is bringing uh, uh, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and even the Buffalo shooters to justice using federal hate crime, uh, uh, federal hate crime laws. That this is progress that is that 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 is that represents justice and does represent uh, promises being upheld, but only if they know about it. And unfortunately, too many black voters do not give credit 
to this administration for that progress because they don't even know what's happening. Well, but but frankly, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not sure I agree uh, that those are top concerns. I, I, look, I I would support <laughs> most of the policies you outlined there, banning chokeholds, um, no knock raids, uh, justice for Breonna Taylor, all those things. But you know, I don't know how many times we have to do this where we, when you poll people who were affected by the summer of unrest, black people whose communities uh, you know, in, endured lo- looting and burning, et cetera, you find from a lot of them, <laughs> communities of color, that they wanted you know, not the kind of criminal justice paradigm being uh, uh, pushed on them by you know, elite white liberals, but they want, uh, they're, they're worried about crime in their communities. They want more enforcement. They don't want more chokeholds. They don't want more no-knock raids. Yes, agree. those things are bad, absolutely. But uh, it, se- it looks to me like a mismatch between what a lot of the elite discourse says this community wants and what the community actually wants. What's your what's your view of that, Malik? Yeah, yeah, so I'm sorry. I, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And that's why I focus on local versus federal. A lot of those things that we're talking about, banning chokeholds, no not warrants, all of those things are actually can be handled at the local level. On the subject of police reform and how much better Joe Biden is on it, I actually will push back with my colleague there. I don't know if he's better on that, but we do know that you know, Donald Trump actually did make criminal justice reform with the first step act and the second chance I'm hiring that he focused on. Those were things that he focused on in his administration. But when it came down to the uh, the police reform bill, the and I think it was uh, June, uh, Tim Scott, the GOP version of the police reform bill, we know that those things, so the limits on chokeholds, the ban, and in fact, Rand Paul had an amendment called the Breonna Taylor Act, which would have effectively banned chokeholds, I'm, I'm sorry, no not warrants, not not just in drug cases, which is what the Democrats' proposals was, he actually done it where it would have affected the entire landscape, effectively banning them across the board. But what happened? We do know that Democrats, they filibustered it. They would not even allow it to come to the floor for a vote. So while we say that these are the things that we want our government to focus on, we actually don't do enough with pushing the, um, the, our, whether it's the Republican Party and especially the Democratic Party in addressing those things, because what killed the police reform bill ultimately was um, qualified immunity. What killed police reform in 2021 was qualified immunity. So all of these things that we talk about, we want the Biden administration to do, they have been addressed in some form, but our political landscape, our political um, um, apparatus in Washington decided that these things were not good enough. So we had to kill an entire bill where Democrats and Republicans agreed probably about on almost 90% of the things that were in the GOP bill, but because it did not have things like, um, you know, the, the qualified immunity and maybe a few other things, it died. So we need to, when we talk about what are the things that we want the federal government to do, we actually do need to look at what they're doing. And it's not just specific to a Republican versus Republican, from sorry, Republican versus Democrat administration. Well, let's worry about it. I'm sorry, I I just have to jump in here because, because Robbie, you said that you're not sure if these are the top concerns of black voters. And I'm telling you that I talk to black voters every day, over 300 focus groups since 2020. And the number one or two issue for black voters is combating racism. That's in every poll that I've conducted. Over 30,000 interviews. If racism and discrimination is not a number one or two issue amongst black voters in polls that you're looking at, it's because they didn't ask it as an issue. This and is I, the top concern. Yeah. And I actually, I'll just I, I ask a question. You know, that would shock me if that's the case, but. 
All right. Yeah, but but what I wanted, I think what we should, so when we say that racism is an issue that we want our federal government to focus on, let's talk about what policies that you're right. actually referencing. What is it that the federal government can do around combating racism? So let's talk about that. Sure, there are a number of things that Biden is doing now at the Department of Justice around civil rights. Um, and I can't think of the young lady's name who's now there. There are things that they're doing around that. But again, the federal government is limited in what it can do to actually address these issues. And we sort of superimpose um, upon the federal government things that are really happening at the local level. So I think we need to talk more about that. Well, I thank you both for this robust conversation. We could do a whole other segment on qualified immunity, what the policy prescriptions behind what uh, you know, solving racism or addressing racism really looks like, et cetera. And we'll have to have you back to keep this conversation going. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We, that have, was to, fun. we have to talk about the civil rights thing, Britt. Like, we, that, that, <laughs> Let's talk about that one, because yeah, will, I've talked about will, that actually We will definitely come back and talk about the, the leaked civil rights tape, which I think really does embody yes. a lot of the problems and the tensions with, between the black community and Joe Biden. But for now, we'll leave it there, and we'll have more rising for you after this. New data shows that there are 4 million fewer students enrolled in college than there were 10 years ago, which includes a 7% drop in attendance between 2016 and 2020 alone. In a new piece for Reason Magazine, my colleague Emma Camp writes that a solid labor market and the rising cost of tuition had actually convinced high school grads that college maybe just isn't worth the expense. Emma Camp joins us now to expand on that. Emma is a student at the University of Virginia and a writer for Reason Magazine. Welcome back to Rising, Emma. Thank you for having me. Though I will note, I did graduate. I'm actually working full-time at Reason now. Sorry for not updating my bio, I guess. Oh, well, congratulations on graduating despite uh, ongoing trends. Tell us, to what do you attribute the uh, diminished number of people actually going to college these days? So what we've seen in this data is that there was a pretty steady decline in the number of high school seniors deciding to immediately enroll in a two or four year university. But based especially on some state level data, which is a bit more recent, there was this massive drop off, particularly from 2019 to 2020, which is pretty easily attributable to COVID-19. Students don't really want to go to online school. Maybe their parent lost their job and wasn't able to help them attend school. But then we also saw another drop from 2020 to 2021. So for example, in the state of Indiana, there was a six percentage point drop from 2019 to 2020 and another six percentage point drop from 2020 to 2021. And so the next kind of possible reason why this is happening is probably the labor market. Right now we have a really bustling labor market. And so what seems to maybe be happening is that you have these high school seniors who are looking at possibly going into a mountain of student loan debt to attend college or to stick with a pretty good job that they have. And what seems to be happening is a lot of these kids are deciding, you know what, it's just not worth it. Well, because it is, I th and I think the pandemic helped show this, for, that for a lot of people it's about a social experience, um, you know, maybe more so than not just having fun, but a, a social experience for a couple of years. And when that was, uh, that aspect of it was so denied to people because of the pandemic, and, and campuses, by the way, remain some of the most militantly COVID restricted environments anywhere, like in the Western world, still masking and, and testing and doing other things at a level that virtually no one else in the United States is doing. Uh, so, you know, with, with, a, with, with a lot of 
pause still, even to this day, on the social aspect of college, I think a lot of young people are saying, well, it's not really worth it. It's not, it's, 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 that's what I was paying for. Do you, do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think that could totally be a contributing factor. You know, I think the worship of the college experience has been the driver of a lot of really poor financial choices for a lot of people who say instead of going to trade school or two years of community college and then transferring to a four-year university, a lot of people signed on to go to four-year schools, um, often private schools that are way more expensive than public schools because of this kind of seeking after this college experience, which ultimately probably isn't worth a lifetime of student loan debt. Right. Well, it should be noted that the, uh, the average trade school graduate graduates with an average of $10,000 of debt, and community college debt is also represented, represents a significant part of the debt held by people uh, who did uh, secondary degrees. Moreover, you know, state institutions aren't free, and many people have tens of thousands of dollars in state debt. So I think there's a little less about a choice about, uh, around elite versus un elite colleges, but the fact that so many jobs do, in fact, require some additional education, whether it is going to trade school or otherwise, and there are results, right? So the average uh, person who graduates with a bachelor degree earns 20,000, more than $20,000 more a year in salary than the person who graduates with a high, only a high school diploma and enters the job market. So I think it's a little disingenuous to pretend that college is this, this frolic and a lark for people. It might be for people like us who are sitting here in this relatively elite context as journalists talking about the kind of colleges we went to, but most people do go to college because they were promised a better life on the other end. I would argue that what is perhaps driving this is that debt is so high and interest rates are so high and the job market for people who do graduate with degrees is so constrained that the that we are in a world where people are requiring master's degrees for jobs that only pay let's say fifty thousand dollars a year but people are making different kinds of calculations because of the debt burden itself not because of necessarily the value of going to school and i wonder emma what the data says on that since there is still obviously an advantage to getting a college degree in in the job market, you know, how much would controlling for the overwhelming debt that people live with for so much of their life would affect these kinds of, uh, or the decline rather, that you're pointing to here in enrollment? Well, something I will note is that I don't think debt is always a bad idea. A lot of times it's really good. It gets a return on your investment. I think, you know, the debt someone takes to go into trade school and then earn six figures as a plumber is definitely a wise decision. Same with someone that takes on you know, a certain amount of student loan debt to go to a state university and get an engineering degree. Um, so I don't think student debt is always a bad financial choice. Um, and for one, I think it could have a really negative effect, effect on the economy to say forgive student loan debt um, and also to kind of place certain price controls on how much colleges can charge. However, a really good way to reduce the price of college is to phase out the federal student loan program altogether. You know, it was very famously argued by the then Secretary of Education in 1987 that the reason why colleges at the time for almost the first time were raising their prices beyond inflation were because all of a sudden students had so much more money to pay them. You know, it's kind of basic economics. You give people more money to pay for something, prices tend to go up. So I think there are lots of ways that we can reduce the cost of a college education. I agree, college costs too much, but I think there are ways of doing it without resorting to kind of regressive means that are currently being argued by a lot of people, for example, massive student debt forgiveness. 
Yeah, I would really push back on the idea that student debt cancellation is regressive, given that obviously, overwhelmingly, people who don't have the money to pay for debt, I don't know if you, Emma, have debt or you know, Robbie, a lot of people, frankly, who go into journalism don't have debt because it pays relatively low for someone with a college degree. I know I personally very much wanted to go into, de uh, into uh, journalism right after college, but wasn't able to do so because I had to pay for my own uh, undergraduate loans. But the reality is that most people um, you know, are in the situation where you have disproportionate debt because you don't have parents who can pay. So you have, for example, the average um, black student debtor having more student debt than the average white student debtor. And to the extent that you're concerned about the regressive nature of people who have gone to college getting this benefit, of course, there are any, any number of benefits that other people get that uh, you know, everybody isn't privy to. But you could do progressive taxation, right, and actually tax people who do succeed in earning very high salaries as a consequence of the degrees. It seems to me that the issue here is that even if you got an engineering degree, there is no meritorious degree that I would argue uh, excuses the usurious loan debt here. So people who become engineers, who become doctors, who do the right thing, I became an attorney, and I think most people would argue that that wasn't some frivolous uh, pottery degree or however it's characterized in the media, still have hundreds of thousands of student debt many years after they graduate. And that creates perverse incentives, right? People who get medical degrees don't go back to their community and practice in their towns that have low access to medical care. They go and become plastic surgeons or anesthesiologists in a big city so they can pay down $400,000, $500,000 worth of debt. So I completely agree with you that there are perverse incentives that are created by the, the student loan um, funding model that we have in this country. But I wonder what role you think having free public colleges would play in allowing people to get the education that they do need to do to do a lot of these jobs. You need to be trained to be a plumber. You need to be trained to be an electrician. You need to be trained to do, do be a doctor and a social worker and a teacher in these kinds of things. Since we really do value the training to have a functioning society, should we put more of an emphasis on having free public institutions that create the well-trained citizenry that we need to take care of us? I'm suspicious of the kind of wiseness of that choice from a financial perspective and kind of increasing the large deficit that we already have. I'm not an expert on free college, so I don't want to pontificate on the exact economic impact of that and into putting my foot in my mouth. But what I will say is the reason why I argue that student loan debt forgiveness is so regressive is because someone has to pay for this forgiveness, and the people who are going to pay for it are the taxpayers. Well, and what nobody actually, and I got to stop you. Transfer from the lower classes, the middle classes, to wealthier people who have college degrees. Who are but Emma, this isn't a. No one has to pay for it. This is a. To your point, this is this is debt held by the federal government because we do have this federal student debt program. So the same way that there has been a moratorium for the past two years and nobody's been paying debt, that money can simply be written off with a stroke of a pen. That's what student debt advocates are writing for. So it's not as though this is a transfer from tax revenues that is going to these people. It would just be a continuation, an indefinite continuation of the policy that we have now. So you can have a kind of a moral objection to it, um, but it is not in fact a a regressive tax, as it were, or something that shows up on America's balance sheet the way you describe it. Well, the federal government was expecting to get, if I recall correctly, $100 billion in revenue from the federal student loan program. Actually, and the so reality is that, money that was going yeah. to be there. That is now, now the government is going to be $200 billion in the whole for, for the federal student loan program just because of the COVID-19 pauses that we have right now. 
Yeah, I mean, part of what student debt advocates have been pointing out is that an overwhelming percentage of those uh, student loan payments that are outstanding are never going to be paid back anyway because people couldn't afford to pay them. And so that's part of why when they calculate, you know, the cost of canceling student debt, the cost of, act, you know, the, the price tag, as it were, on the cancellation number versus the amount of outstanding debt, there's a huge gulf between them because they already understand that that debt is not, um, uh, people are judgment-proof, as they say. They, well, they're unable to collect on that debt. Need. Yeah. That's because the need, I think, to reform the system. If they they know that these people aren't going to even be able to pay it back, you know, why does the system allow people to go into debt this way? You know, for degrees. I agree. Um, some of which are useful, some of which are not. I mean, you do see a lot of cases of people who went to elite schools. You know, studied something that maybe is philosophically enriching. Uh, and, and, you know, in an ideal world, everyone could make, you know, make their soul more pure, their intellect more fulfilled by studying it. But there are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and there's no job that corresponds or that pays back for that level of precise knowledge about, uh, about literature or philosophy or politics. Or It's true of journalism. In fact, and journalists will tell you, do not go to journalism school. Don't get a graduate degree unless you're very wealthy independently and you don't mind spending the money. Do not go into any debt to study journalism as like a science or a, or a discipline. Journalism is a craft that you get better at by practicing in, a, in an internship. Do, you know, do an internship, write for your student paper. That's how I came up uh, through it. And, and that's, that's something all, virtually all journalists will tell people. So Robbie, let me it's ask you this. that they still offer these programs. Let me ask you this, Robbie, because I agree with you that obviously I, I didn't go to journalism school and I wouldn't go to journalism school. But it is also true that people who do have better degrees, Tony degrees from more prestigious undergraduate institutions, tend to get the jobs in journalism that pay better and have more prestige. I don't know that I would have been allowed to walk on basically as a senior politics editor at The Intercept if I didn't have two degrees from Harvard under my belt. And when I look at the masthead of The New York Times, uh, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, New York Magazine, it is a lot of people who went to Tony colleges whose parents were able to, yes, fund their education and then allow them to go on and take a career that didn't pay very much. So I, I wonder what you want to do about those kind of inequities that are already built into our system. I, I honestly, uh, well, that is true to some degree. I actually think a larger problem in the field of journalism is just nepotism, is, is uh, you know, famous uh, sons of people with, uh, with politicians' last names, sons and daughters of people who have political last names, you know, get to rise very quickly or get, you know, get uh, easy plum gigs in journalism workshops. It's true that, it, yes, your Harvard graduates, your Yale graduates dominate at the top, but people, you, you can walk in, distinguish yourself and rise um, somewhat quickly if, you know, if you're a good worker and you're good at your job and you're and willing to And if you could afford New initially. York rent. <laughs> And if you can afford well, New York rent and your parents not boosting. So here's the thing. I don't disagree with you guys both that the, the system is broken. My issue is blaming individual students who have been told for 20 years that the way to succeed in the job market is to get an education and go out into the world. Now being told, oh, you're just a dumb idiot and, the, and no one's going to stand in and protect you or actually try to reform the system in a meaningful way. We're just going to do this kind of performative, oh, it's an elite thing. You're an elite. When frankly, what we were sold was going to college 
college was the best way to come up the economic ladder. And the reason why so many black people disproportionately, I would argue, have these meaningless advanced degrees and a lot of student debt is because we were told, we were castigated and told that we were, we were disproportionately disadvantaged economically in society because we didn't work hard, because we didn't value education and all these things. Now that everybody in the world has a master's degree or social worker's degree and, and all of these other kinds of things, we're being told, oops, I lied to you, but there's no consequences for that bargain that was struck with well, those people. Well, let's hold people. those liars accountable. Let's hold those policymakers accountable. Well, the liar it's, was the government. And, and I'm, not, I'm not calling anyone <laughs> stupid. I'm saying, but I'm, I'm simply saying, don't do that anymore. Don't, yeah. do not go down that path. It's not a good path. We should reform the path so it doesn't exist. But we should give Emma the last word here. Yeah, you know, I think the advice that we're giving high school seniors should change. And, you know, I, I think to your point, I do have a lot of pity for people that went to community college for two years and then went to their state university and tried their very best and are still facing financial hardship. You know, I have less pity for people who chose to go to a fancier school over a state university and went into mountains of debt because of, you know, wanting a college experience or wanting some kind of elite shine. You know, I think I will defend myself and say that, you know, I got a full ride scholarship to go to college. And if I had not gotten a scholarship to UVA, I would have gone to the University of Alabama. And if I had not gotten a scholarship to the University of Alabama, I would have gone to community college. That was the plan I set for myself because I was aware, you know, I, I was 17 or 18, but I wasn't an idiot. You know, I realized what a life with a large student debt burden was like and so i adjusted my decisions accordingly i fundamentally am suspicious of the idea that it's the government's job to correct for unwise choices when people have all of the information available well, Emma, I would argue that back when I went to college in 2003, we didn't have all the information. It was before a financial crisis, and we were being told very explicitly by the same government that doesn't want to take responsibility for its messaging. That's exactly what we should do. And people like myself did go to the colleges that we went to because they were, in fact, cheaper. A lot of elite colleges like Harvard have better financial aid packages than the state school offerings in my state. And that was the sound economic decision at the time. But things change. Housing crises happen. Parents are affected, as I'm sure you know. And I think do appreciate you bringing this really robust conversation to us today about how to address the um, kind of, I think, failed bargains that were struck with people who are now in their 30s and 40s and 50s who were really disadvantaged by the, the false promises of the government. But we have to leave it there. Thank you, Emma, so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. First Lady Jill Biden tested positive for COVID yesterday. Her communications director said the First Lady is double vaccinated, twice boosted, and only experiencing mild symptoms. They should have that refrain pretty, pretty down by now. That's what they say about everyone. White House COVID response director, Dr. Ashish Jha, discussed the state of the pandemic yesterday and unexpected difficulties over the past two years. Let's watch. The social science of building trust, of countering misinformation, of not politicizing the most basic of public health measures. Um, that part turned out to be much, much harder than I think many of us expected. I had a mental model three years ago, and now you're gonna see how naive I was. My mental model was you get the science right, you build great vaccines, you build good treatments, everybody will come and get it, the pandemic will be over, we're gonna be in great shape. Turns out, not so simple. Hmm. It's not a lot of, I would like to hear some reflection about why it didn't go exactly as planned. I do think that some of it, you know, some of the politicization has obviously come around 
um, you know, a conservative movement to kind of have a libertarian approach to not, you know, wanting to have mandates, whether it's a vast mandate or, or a vaccine mandate. But some of it also was started at the beginning with the lack of transparency from public tra uh, health officials about the utility of masks in the first place. I do think that this crisis has grown over time in a way that people have to take accountability for. And there was broad compliance with vaccines, vaccines and an excitement around vaccines when they first became available uh, in the spring of 2021 because it meant that we could return to normal, and for a while, I think it was a success story until these new variants undermined the messaging that basically said the vaccines were going to prevent transmission in a way that they did not. And I don't think that people are gonna have a lot of faith in upcoming vaccine efforts if they don't reckon with how the public health messaging got us to the place we're in now. Yeah, the public health messaging has been really bad a lot of times, really confusing, contradictory for people, um, and, and also, you know, clamping down on the wrong things. The public health officials wanted to stop you from being able to question whether COVID perhaps emerged from a lab. Now that's a view we're allowed to discuss because it has enough legitimacy, certainly not proven, and a lot of people still think it's more likely to have uh, emerged in nature, but you know that was something that you were you were derided as a conspiracy theorist or a racist or something, which never made any sense uh, for talking about, or you know, or for questioning uh, for questioning masks all along. Now they're saying that really, unless you're wearing you know the very sturdiest masks, the, um, the the lesser masks are not doing very much good at all. That's you know that's something regular sort of well-respected public health officials are saying regarding at least the new variants. Maybe there's Maybe that was not true for the original strain. And, and then, of course, as you said, the, the messaging on what vaccines were doing for you just changed so dramatically. And look, I get that science is a process and you can say that this is a new disease and, and you know, a certain assumptions that were made early proved out to be wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was wrong to make those assumptions. But I guess there was just a, you know, you're, if you're asking questions, like only we're allowed to ask the questions, we ask the questions. If you're questioning us, you're, you're impugning science itself, which is you know, the, the famous kind of frustrated remark uh, from Dr. Fauci, when, when internally these people are having all sorts of debates all the time and have changed their minds all the time. So it just doesn't, I think, comport with the experience most people had of the pandemic, which is a very confused, understandably confused in some ways, public health reaction, in other ways, just indefensible. I mean, the, the, the CDC's screw up with testing early on is, is totally indefensible, yeah. totally this, it, the institution was built to handle something like this and completely, completely failed. Yeah, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, right? Because on one hand, you know, there is a certainty that comes down in messaging about the science that's intended, I think, to push back against people who are trying to kind of opportunistically create more ambiguity than exists because either they have a political motive like, opening businesses back up because they are themselves business owners or industry folks who needed the economy to get back going, even if that was kind of against public health recommendation, or whether because there are quite literal political kind of electoral consequences for looking like you're coming down against what had become politicized as like a science, more liberal uh, environment. But these things are in tension with each other. And the more there is a, a, a conservative politicization of these issues, the more the liberals are going to pretend that science is a subjective thing and not provide the kind of nuance that would give it a cushion when it changes its mind about something. And it, it feels like a, 
one of those finger traps we used to play with as a child, and I don't know which side is going to give first or if any side will give at all. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently gave a press conference just yesterday about teacher recruitment that was wrapped up with this COVID conversation. Let's take a listen. They lied to us about the mRNA shots. They said if you take it, you will not get COVID. That is false. That is not true. And they continue to say, even now when the evidence is so overwhelming, uh, that not only is that not true, people that have multiple boosters, you know, you're, at, you're definitely at risk of getting it. There's no question about that. So, so it's just time and time again, I think you've seen ideology placed over over data and evidence. And then what happens is, is that they will say something like, okay, six weeks of masks will end COVID. So that's what they claim. It doesn't happen. And then what they'll do is they will kind of move the goalposts and say, well, you know, only 95% wore it. So now, and they will constantly uh, try to shift because they will never admit that their ideology was, was incorrect. Hmm, ideology. It's an interesting word choice. The governor also commented on Florida's non-woke status. In the state of Florida, because we've taken on woke corporations, we've taken on ESG. Obviously, in the classroom, we've battled a lot of ideologies. But what I've said is that the state of Florida is the state, uh, is the place where woke goes to die. Uh, we are not going to let this state... We're not going to let this state descend into some type of woke dumpster fire. We're going to be following <laughs> common sense. We're going to be following, um, you know, facts. And that's just really, really important. Put on a license the war plate. On woke, <laughs> get, get, get rid of the sunshine state. Change all the license plates. It's now Florida, the state where woke goes to die. I mean, Okay, Robbie. It's a winning political message. What can you say? It's a winning political message in the Republican, Republican world. It has some, you have to concede, it has some crossover appeal. Um, if, if, you know, if it's especially, I think, divorced from the person of, of Donald Trump, uh, you know, look at the way sort of Glenn Youngkin pulled it off. I think that's a model for Republicans. Maybe uh, DeSantis probably leans into it a little too much for, uh, for a general election. I'm talking, of course, about you know, presidential at this point, but uh, but that's the strategy, and uh, it, it has a lot going for it. Here, here's the thing. He says he wants to go after woke corporations. So let, let me get this straight. Corporations who saw unprecedented profits at the expense of consumers, workers, voters over the course of the pandemic. You're going to part, take, take all these exploiters and put them into two camps. The ones that you deem woke by some metric, because there's no such thing as a woke corporation. They're all soulless, blood-sucking, profit-driven uh, miscreants, as far as I'm concerned. But you're going to quarter them Tell us them how you into... really feel about the Disney corporation, Brianna. <laughs> you're going to quarter them into two arbitrary buckets and say, we're going to go after these ones because they used HR language that I didn't like, and uh, they put an LGBT flag outside of the business, or whatever constitutes woke I'm not an expert. And then the other corporations are apparently off the hook, no matter how much they are raging wages, you know, exploiting their workers, not providing benefits, cutting people's hours to below 40 hours a week so they don't have to give required benefits to the people that they um, are, are working for them and creating their profits, you know, not paying out health care benefits, cheating on their taxes. That's not the focus. And then, and then voters apparently are charmed by all of this because wokeness, look, I don't, look, I, I, 
have a perfectly valid critique of wokeness myself. But wokeness, I'm sorry, is not the thing that's keeping your refrigerator empty and your gas tank empty. It's not. And this this is an obvious sleight of hand that Rob DeSantis and the conservatives are doing to make their struggling base that deserves real policy prescriptions to address the concerns that they rightly have. They're, they're being deflected with this kind of nonsense. And it's, it is frustrating to me as someone who legitimately wants their lives to be better, that this, this is a substitute for substantive politics these days. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. So I agree with some of what you said. Um, like I share as a more, you know, as a, as a libertarian and a more kind of a business friendly Republican, I guess, uh, you're going to hate that. So many of our viewers, but, uh, I, I do not think it's necessarily a great use of the state of the government's time to like persecute corporations over their HR policies or their Pride Day flags or whatever, whatever stuff they're doing. Um, it, it, to the extent you know, there's there's wokeness has infected um, our our public schools or our institutions of government uh, in ways that that doesn't comport with civil rights law, I am more willing to say something should be done. If, uh, you know, corporations are doing, have policies you don't like, speech-related policies you don't like, you should probably just not sub, just don't frequent, the, don't be a customer of those yeah, boy, corporations, Pat I guess. <laughs> yeah, so, so, right. So, so substantively, probably I agree with you that this is not, this is not my favorite area of intense focus for Republican politicians. Where I guess I, I do disagree with you is that I don't know that it, it is a sleight of hand or it is a deflection. I mean, they're, they're being very transparent and saying, right, we're going to go after these corporations if they do X, Y, and Z, and otherwise we're leaving them alone because we do want to leave businesses alone. And it seems by and large their voters and, and many, many people, a, a large portion of the country says, yeah, we're good with that. We, we just don't yeah. like these things. We don't like the things we associate with wokeness. We don't well, like, I, you know, I, that, that, that's it. I think everyone in Florida should go home, make themselves a little voodoo doll that says woke on it, stick all the pins in it, you know, tear up pieces of paper with woke written on it over and over again, scream at the TV set, unsubscribe from the Weed channel, do whatever makes you feel good about ending wokeness, participate in your school board, make sure they never teach beloved, all of those things. However, just if you could also at the same time recognize that one in five Florida corporations paid no income tax, in 2020, and also maybe focus on those kinds of things, I suspect you might get a better return on the quality of your life. That's You'll all. appreciate this, uh, Brianna, for the latest edition of Reason Magazine. For our print edition, I wrote about the wrong and misguided efforts to get Beloved out of the curriculum. So you'll have to, oh, you'll a, have to check a, that out. A Toni Morrison Stan King. We love to see it, yeah. Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Prosecutors say the traveling nurse accused of killing six people after running a red light in Los Angeles was suffering from worsening mental health issues, had hurt herself before, and had been involuntarily committed for psychiatric treatment multiple times. Prosecutors argued in court yesterday that as a result of her mental illness, Nicole Lorraine Linton should be held pretrial without bail. Meanwhile, Linton's defense attorneys are now denying media reports that the nurse had been involved in 14 previous accidents before the August 4th crash, with one attorney calling the allegations, quote, patently false. 
It was the LA Times who had reported that prosecutors alleged she had been in 13 car crashes, both in and out of California, including a 2020 accident that left two cars totaled. Now, Robbie, certainly if that information isn't true, it really changes the color that was put on the story. Um, but I'm not sure substantively how much it changes kind of the gravity of uh, the, the enormity of the tragedy and why there was so much public interest in it. What do you make of it? Certainly, um, <clears throat> we should know the truth of this, but I don't, uh, if the LA, the LA Times had reported that there were all those previous crashes, including the very serious one in 2020, the only information contradicting that is a statement from her attorney, which said that that was a false accusation. So it could just be that there, that maybe it was 12 crashes instead of 13, or, or there's some way in which they're creatively trying to argue, right, that it's, that's not exactly what happened. But I'm not seeing any mainstream reporting, any reporting at all suggesting that that information was wrong if that information was wrong that's a, a huge screw up on the part of the la times and you know whoever or whoever reported it initially and should certainly be corrected but at this stage i don't see any reason to actually presume that it's substantively incorrect what was the reason you know to, I mean? to believe the la times to begin with it didn't offer any substantiation itself in terms of uh you know police records or anything like that to its initial allegation, right? Because it would seem like I, the LA Times has continued to report on the story. It's reported now on the um, defense attorney's uh, statement that there weren't these previous incidents. And it would seem that the LA Times would have an investment in pushing back against this with whatever it used to substantiate its initial claim if it had it. The absence of that pushback to me suggests, yes, a, a kind of limbo period where I don't know that I would especially believe one or the other at this time. What is also new, though, is more information. This is, again, from the LA Times about the history of mental health. Um, quote, the defense has disclosed a number of prior incidents which appear to be increasing in severity, ranging from the defendant jumping on police cars to jumping out of apartment windows. The defense indicates that Linton has been subject to involuntary commitments on several occasions and has hurt herself more than once. I mean, that does kind of square with what we saw, with how fast the car was going. and. And, and rec it was reckless to the extreme. And also, we did have questions at the time. I know we were both asked, you know, how would, did she have a license? How was she able to drive right. if she had, in fact, been in so many crashes already? And in, in fact, she should not have a license to drive. If you've been involuntarily committed, I mean, that's what they were saying there. That, so that means she was forced to be committed to a mental health facility against her will multiple times. Um, you know, that is not a scenario you, you should not be driving. Um, it, it's it's so so I'd, I'd like to know if she did actually have a license or, or what the you know, we, we need to find out more about what her previous interactions with law enforcement or prosecutors were like to, you know, if we were trying to make a determination or some suggestion that they've been too lenient previously to even allow her in a situation um, to do this, of course, she could, you know she could drive without a driver's license. Some right. some people do do that, so it's it, that's not a, a guarantee that, that keeps you at bay. But uh, but um, yeah, and it's it's interesting at, at the same time. I don't know if you followed it all. The very tragic death of Anne Hesh, hmm. um, who's an actress who passed away um, this week, or I, I think was taken off life life support, or, or is going to be taken off life support if that hasn't happened already. Yes following a really horrific car crash that, that she had. And she was also someone who'd suffered from 
uh, serious mental illness. She had acknowledged that. She'd written about it in the past. She'd written a whole book about it. Um, uh, as she crashed her car into, I, I think, into uh, two different houses, maybe one was her own, and really, I think, burned down um, the, the, the second home. And thankfully, no one other than her was uh, was hurt. But And this was also in, in, maybe not in the LA area, but in California, at least. So it uh, happening at virtually the same time. So it, it not that there's any you know connection whatsoever between the stories, but you know just goes to show you the um, people <laughs> with serious mental health problems should not be operating uh, well, vehicles. I mean, Robbie, from a civil libertarian perspective, I'm not sure that we want to go down the road of saying everyone who has mental illness should be denied the right to have a license. I mean, obviously there are cases where I would expect that you know to be a useful intervention, but I would expect those to be pretty limited in nature given the large number of people who seek some kind of institutional help over the course of their their lives. And this is a conversation that obviously gets had in, among, in, in the gun control context a lot with yeah. a lot of folks arguing that, you know, having back these kind of mental health background checks will, would prevent people's liberty interests in accessing firearms. And I certainly think that the right to, to drive, given the economic implications of being able to get to work and things like that, on top of the less lethal, you know, um, implications of a car versus a gun, would militate toward just just wanting to be a little bit circumspect before we kind of oh, sir, say no, that the issue here a, is mental health. Yeah, ab absolutely, that's a great point. But being involuntarily committed is a pretty high bar. That's not like a that's not a common occurrence for for people you know, just for your mundane kind of having a mental health issue or something. That's that's to be against your will um, placed in a facility it is difficult to it's <laughs> this isn't this isn't like, you know, the early nineteen hundreds where you could have any disagreeable person sent off to the, you know, the asylum and have them lobotomized or something. This is th there are uh, real big barriers to doing that. So that's a that's a if, if okay. that's once that's done to you it's it's I, I, that's that's going to filter out a lot of cases where you'd be like, oh no, th this person is still fine to drive. In in my view, I, I guess. Well, I the, yeah, the, the 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 one one flew over the cuckoo's nest of it all <laughs> aside. I do you know I do think it matters when it happened. Obviously, people are institutionalized in part to get better, right. and I wouldn't I would hardly want that to be you know there there be a presumption of unfitness just because of that. But we of course will be continuing to follow this case and we'll update you when we have more information about uh, both the mental health and criminal history uh, background of the driver of the car. That's all the time we have on that topic. But tomorrow we'll be back with more updates on the Trump Mar-a-Lago saga. And Robbie, I am glad that you're feeling better and perhaps look forward to seeing you in the studio soon. Absolutely. Very soon. Thank you so much, Brianna. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. Never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And please catch us on the Plex TV app, which I keep promising I'm going to download and figure out and report back on how you do it. <laughs> Maybe today is the day. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>